Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you, John, for your very kind words of introduction. Thank you for the invitation. It is, of course, a great pleasure to be here. And I look forward to this exchange of ideas, thoughts with you about the crises that have afflicted Europe in recent years. Uh, as Professor Keane mentioned, I wrote this book in defense of Europe. The title is Daring, very ambitious. And it was written in 2015, early 16. It was times of doom and gloom in Europe. It was a time that many people, increasing number of people, mostly, I should say, on the British Isles and the United States, began to speculate about the demise of the common currency, the euro, and about the disintegration of the European Union. It was indeed a combination of crises. It was turning into an existential crisis. I did not exactly share the views of the Xandras, but I did realize that this was the worst moment for European integration since the very beginning in the 1950s. So I wrote this book trying to remind myself and my readers what is the European project all about. You know, we, the initiated, refer to European integration as the European project. So if I sometimes forget and refer to it as the European project, you know what I'm talking about. So I wanted to remind myself and my readers what is the European project all about and what is at stake. Number two, I thought I should try and understand what's gone wrong with it, what does explain all those crises, draw some lessons, and then look at the future and look at possible prospects or Euro the European Union. Of course, since I wrote the book, three important events have happened, which have helped to change the mood and the political climate in most European capitals. It was not expected, the effect was not expected when, it actu when they actually happened, but this is the change. The three events are Brexit, number one, the election of President Trump, number two, and the election of President Macron in France, number three. Those events combine with an underlying trend, which is of a sustained economic recovery in Europe for the first time now for the last four years. So let me first of all go back and try to understand what has been happening over the long term. I think there are two important trends that we need to identify and understand. First, is that I believe that European institutions suffer from overstretch. And this overstretch is the result of a continuous expansion in terms of membership and functions. Remember that European integration starts with six countries and ends up with 28, while there are even many more in the waiting room, waiting to join. It starts with two sectors of the economy and ends up with everything. Of course, a continuous expansion in terms of functions and membership 
is an undisputable sign of success. I mean, no organization continues to grow in terms of numbers and functions if it is not perceived to be delivering something useful. But the, the expansion combined with a still weak center and a weak legitimacy base makes, makes a rather awkward combination. So European institutions over the years have expanded, but they, know they do not have a stronger base, both legitimacy-wise and in terms of political uh, in, in terms of political instruments. And there's something else if we look at long-term trends. And this is that Europe and European integration in particular runs the risk of being victim of collateral damage. What is this collateral damage? This collateral damage has to do with the latest phase of global capitalism. <coughs> What are the three main characteristics of this latest phase of global capitalism of the last 25 to 30 years that apply to virtually all advanced economies, both Europe and the United States, to a lesser extent Australia, because Australia has been growing faster than most. One is slow growth, much slower growth than the growth experienced in the first four to five decades after the end of the Second World War, number one. Number two, growing economic divergence between countries. And the main explanation for that is some countries have been much more successful in adjusting to the needs of globalization than others. If you take Europe, you have to contrast the experience of Germany as a successful country taking advantage of a rapid process of economic globalization with the experience of Italy, Portugal, my own country, Greece, who have been losers from globalization in the last two to three decades. And the other important characteristic of this latest phase of global capitalism, which perhaps is the most important, is widening income disparities within countries. So you have the combination of, of a stretch and a deteriorating economic environment. And th both those trends have gradually sapped the capacity of European institutions to deliver. And then come the big crisis of recent years, namely the Euro crisis and the refugee crisis. Both, if you think about it, are externally generated. They are the result of external events which nevertheless, when they come to Europe, they expose the vulnerability of the European construction and lead to crisis. Let me explain what do I mean by that. Uh, by the way, since we have a great expert on democracy here, uh, when I talked about overstretch, the point perhaps that needs to be made is that in Europe, with European integration, we have a growing discrepancy between policy integration and political integration. You have policy that is being integrated, power is transferred from the national level to the European or to the global level, while politics remains in persistently national and local. And that leads to tension, 
Okay? So the powers do not correspond to the politics. Now, let's, let me come back now to the two crises that have affected Europe in recent years. The Euro crisis. Now, to understand the crisis of the Euro, you have to take into account three factors. I think, perhaps to explain it, it's a combination of poor design, bad luck, and wrong policy. Let me explain. The Europeans decided back in the early 1990s to proceed with a currency union, to create a common currency and throw into the dustbin of history historical national currency. This was the most daring act of integration ever. Money, money is not only important in economic terms, it's not only important in political terms, but it's also one of the main pillars of national sovereignty. So the Europeans, rightly or wrongly, decided in the early 1990s to take the big leap forward. Why do they do that? Not so much for economic reasons, but for political reasons. To understand why Europe moves to monetary union, you have to take into consideration the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the reaction of the French, especially. The French faced the prospect of the united Germany and, and the fear in France is that this may gradually lead to the shift in the balance of power within Europe. What is France's answer to that problem, as is perceived in France, is to strengthen the European framework in order to be able to better accommodate and integrate a stronger Germany. They had done it back in 1950 when they started European integration, and they are repeating it again with monetary union. So they are using economic means to achieve political ends. They are using European monetary union as a way of strengthening the European construction, which in turn will allow them to integrate more easily uh, a united Germany. Now, now back to the euro. Uh, so let me get back to it. So the Europeans decided to create a common currency for essentially highly political reasons, not for economic reasons. The problem is that while deciding to proceed with a common currency, they were not willing already able to endow this currency union with the necessary institutions and instruments that would be important, necessary, if and when the crisis comes. So the so-called Maastricht Treaty that led to the creation of the currency union could be seen as a fair weather construction. And fair weather did indeed last for approximately 10 years. And then comes the international financial crisis. So this is really what I call bad luck, because having the first test of a young currency in the form of the biggest international financial crisis since 1929 is bad luck. So you are ill-prepared and you are unlucky. And then to top it all up, you adopt the wrong policy, because Europeans for years remained in a state of denial and pretended that the crisis of the euro was essentially a crisis 
of individual countries who had pursued for many years irresponsible fiscal policies. Greece was a best example. And Greece had indeed pursued irresponsible fiscal policies and had ended up with a serious loss of competitiveness and with huge accumulated debt. But Greece was not the central problem of the euro area because the crisis in the euro area in the same way as in the United States was essentially a banking crisis and a debt crisis. And Europeans, especially when I talk about Europeans, it was the predominant view of essentially German inspiration, uh, pretended that this was otherwise. So Europe's adjustment to the crisis took much longer than in the United States. So the Euro crisis not only cost, uh, it applied a very heavy economic price for the whole of Europe, but it also had a very serious political effect because European politics became absolutely toxic. The exchange of insults and recriminations between European politicians at the peak of the Euro crisis had never been experienced since the end of the Second World War. So the atmosphere changed dramatically. But so did also political reality in Europe. And if I were to summarize this new political reality in Europe, I would do it in three headings. One is the emergence of Germany as the undisputed leader of the bloc, not only within the Eurozone, but for the European Union as a whole. So Germany becomes leader, but a leader who is both reluctant and appears to be unhappy. And also a leader who has views about economic policy that are not necessarily shared by many other European countries. So the emphasis in the approach of the Eurozone is on so-called austerity policies. That is German-inspired. It depends which economic school you come from. If you think that Keynes is not completely dead, then uh, you might lead that might lead you to the conclusion that the policies adopted by European countries up to 2012 were disastrous in economic terms. In fact, there's an interesting comment made by somebody called Wolfgang Münchau. Wolfgang Münchau is a German who's a leading economics writer in the Financial Times who once said or wrote that half of German economists have never read Keynes and the other half have never understood him. But <laughs> the answer, I suppose, of your average German economist could be, and so what? Right? Uh, it is true that for those of us, including myself, who still believe there is something in Keynesian writing about economic policy, what was happening in Europe, especially up to 2012, had a very negative impact on the economy. And then comes, so that's the first thing, the change of European political reality. The second thing is an emergent, a growing number of free riders, misfits, and laggards inside the European Union. 
So, I mean, this, the European zoo was getting pretty untidy and pretty unruly, rather. And the third factor is perhaps even more important, and this is we have witnessed in recent years the rise of anti-systemic parties and populist politics in virtually all European countries. The rise of anti-systemic parties has both an economic dimension and an identity politics dimension. Uh, there is no doubt that the increase in income disparities within our countries has turned the people who perceive themselves as losers, those who are left behind econ from economic change, to turn against what they call the system. And the European Union is perceived by them as part of the system because essentially the European Union is a vehicle of change and liberalization. And liberalization is bad in their eyes, and probably not only in their eyes, objectively it's bad for them because they are losing out of the change. But there is also a cultural dimension which is linked very much to immigration. So the people who also perceive immigration as a threat turn towards anti-systemic parties. And sometimes in some countries you have a combination of the two. So the result of all those things is that the European project became, or rather the European Union looked increasingly ungovernable at the peak of the crisis. And now comes the refugee crisis to which I've already referred, but let me explain again what this means. Uh, if you look at uh, the map around Europe, at Europe's neighborhoods, the picture is pretty unpleasant, and this is to put it mildly. Europe is surrounded by a wide arc of instability that starts from Ukraine, goes down to Georgia and Moldova, Turkey, Syria, Middle East, Egypt, North Africa. Not only virtually all of Europe's neighbors are much poorer than any country of the European Union, but they are also extremely unstable, and instability has grown in recent years for two reasons mainly. One is that the Arab Spring turned bad, and then number two, because the Iraqi war had disastrous consequences, not only for Iraq, but for the, broader re the wider region. So the neighborhood is exporting instability to Europe. And this instability takes the form of an increasing number of refugees, immigrants, and occasionally terrorists. Uh, plus, if you take into account the fact that you have uh, a gradual shift in the center of gravity from the Atlantic Ocean to Eurasia, and you also have an increasingly revisionist President Putin, or Prime Minister Putin, depending on the hat he's wearing at the time. Uh, so, what happens is that Europeans discover, increasingly, that the idea of soft power as an alternative mode of behavior in international relations doesn't take you very far. In a world that is governed, mo governed mostly by bullies and not countries that exercise soft power, while with the emergence also, or rather with the arrival of President Trump, 
to the presidency of the United States, you discover that even the United States is not necessarily any longer a defender of the liberal global order. So the world around those Europe is changing dramatically. Now, so far I've been talking about problems, long-term problems, recent crises, and let me add one more crisis and then see how is it that Europe has survived. The next crisis is, of course, Brexit. Uh, Brexit and the referendum that was held in June 2016 will, I think, remain in British history as one of the worst examples of self-inflicted injury and one of the biggest acts of political irresponsibility for decades, if not of the century. Uh, Britain had already been for a long time a rather awkward partner in the European project because British political class had always been divided, and this is, to put it mildly, on Europe. I mean, for most British politicians, the best thing that could be said for years was that the European Union is not as bad as it looks. This was usually the best they could say. But, and they never felt as co-owners of the European project, and they also tended systematically to underestimate the influence that Britain had on European policies and European institutions. So the referendum happened, and 52%, as you probably remember, of the British people voted for Brexit. Now, if you look at who voted for to leave or to stay, you really find a pretty extraordinary, I call unholy alliance of very different groups of people who took the country out. And if I were to simplify a bit and put it in almost slogan terms, I would say that Brexit was decided by an unholy alliance of, on the one hand, old age English nationalists in the countryside, and on the other hand, the losers from economic change in the former industrial heartlands of England. These groups are totally different. So they have coalesced to take the country out, but there is no way that you can satisfy both in the policies that you're going to adopt after the decision to leave. And this is one of the biggest problems facing the present government in Britain or any government in the future. Because the old English nationalists, still many of them live in another age about the role and the standing of Britain in the world. And some of them are also, many people of the Conservative Party, are talking in terms of a global Britain that will be signing free trade agreements left, right, and center. But the biggest part of those who voted for Brexit are not looking for free trade agreements, they're looking for protection. So try to reconcile the two, it's not going to be fun. And this, to put it mildly. Now, uh, I understand that President Trump, uh, when he phoned the President of the European Council, the first question he asked him was, who's next after Brexit? Because remember that the main advice he was getting from Europe 
was from Mr. Farage, who was the leader of the UK Independence Party. That was his main source of information and advice about <laughs> Europe. So he asked the president of the European Council, who's next? And I understand the answer he was given is nobody. And this is the answer I give you as well. Nobody's going to follow the UK. And in fact, what is happening now, which goes against the feeling that prevailed for several months after the British referendum, is that Brexit is turning into a unifying factor for the EU27. And Brexit is also serving as a lesson for others as to not what not to do. So uh, it's awkward and negotiations for the next few months will be very difficult. Britain will leave in May 2019. The key question is whether it's going to be an amicable divorce, an agreed divorce, or not. If there is no deal and no transitional period, it will have a very serious political and economic effect, much more on the UK than on the EU. Of course, given the relative size of the two sides. Now, and that brings me to one lesson that we could try to draw from the experience of recent years. On the one hand, I've been talking about a Europe that has difficulty in managing what it has produced, and a Europe that has more divergence between countries and more divergence within countries. So an ungovernable lot. Yet that lot seems to survive, with the exception of the UK. In fact, it's a comment I heard during my visit in Australia, and I thought it was very good, and I will repeat it. The EU does not seem to work in theory, but it works in practice. So against the odds, the EU does function and deliver. I mean, if you look at the combination of countries and the politics of the EU, you would say that they cannot agree on anything, and they do, on most issues. Now, why? What is it that keeps Europe together even in the worst of crises, which are the crises that we have experienced in recent years, okay? Because these have really been the worst ever experienced. It was pretty bad, you know? Uh, Euro, refugees, Brexit, Trump is difficult. Now, what keeps Europe together, I think? Oh, first of all, before I talk about that, let me say that one lesson we draw is that the European Union is slow in reacting to change. And it's extremely slow in changing direction. No surprise if you have any idea as to how decisions are taken at the EU of 27 or 28. This is normal. I mean, the EU is like a tanker. It takes a very long time to change direction. And once it does, you better not find yourself on its path because it cannot change again. So it's slow, uh, it's cumbersome, yet one thing we survive, or we, we have discovered, is there is apparently a very strong collective instinct of survival when you reach the edge of the precipice. And why is this instinct of survival? 
Because the European Union to me looks like often like an unhappy marriage. In fact, if you think about it, it's a polygamous affair. It is not an unhappy marriage. So it is an unhappy polygamous affair in which very often partners really hate each other and they exchange insults at each other. But before taking the final step, they remember two things. First of all, that none of them wants to be left on his or her own because European countries have discovered that individual European countries do not count for very much in a world that is changing rapidly and in a pretty awkward neighborhood. And number two, that the cost of divorce is prohibitive. And that applies in particular to the euro. Hence, even at the worst moment, give you an illustration, uh, the euro in many ways has been a disaster for some countries, including my own, and partly because of our own fault. But even at the worst moment, about all opinion polls suggested that about 65% of Greeks wanted to keep the euro. Now, is it, you think, because the Greeks are masochists? No, it's because the Greeks realized that the alternative was even worse. So the fear of the cost of divorce and the fear of isolation keeps Europe together when it comes to the crunch. And the British are the exception because the British somehow felt that they have an alternative. I hope it's, things turn out well for them, but I very much doubt it. Now, what are the prospects for the future? I said that the climate has changed because all three events that have happened since June 2016 have contributed, are unifying factors for the EU27 and not the opposite. Brexit is acting as a unifying factor. The election of Mr. Trump is acting as a unifying factor because Europeans increasingly realize that they may not be able to rely any longer fully on US protection for collective security. And especially when the neighborhood goes so bad, they may have to take more action collectively to defend themselves and their interests. And number three, which is perhaps the most important of all, at least for the time being, the election of a French president who is the most European-minded president of the French Republic ever and with very strong views about Europe and very clear views about what he wants to change in Europe. And plus, of course, a sustained economic recovery that makes it easier to take decisions. Uh, so we think, I think that the first six months, if not the whole of 2018, will be an important year in which the Europeans will be trying to agree on important reforms and new initiatives. First of all, who will lead the show? The show, if there is a show, will be led, as it happened very often in the past, by France and Germany. The, it is a characteristic of European integration that it is Franco-German initiatives that take you forward. Now, the 
convenient thing is that France and Germany very often, on many issues, start from opposite ends of the political spectrum. And while they try to converge, the other countries intervene and come with their own spe special interests. So it's convenient for the others to engage themselves and be active in that bargaining process. So, and for a Franco-German initiative to happen, to materialize, you need, as a precondition, to restore some balance between France and Germany. So the capacity, or rather, the Franco-German bargain depends very much on the capacity of the French to increase their credibility and strengthen their role inside the European Union. And this, I think, is very well understood by Macron. So he is doing domestic reforms as a precondition for the reforms he's asking for at the European level. What are the main areas you would, we would expect initiatives? One is, of course, the Eurozone, because you have to take measures to make the common currency more sustainable. They will not be easy at all, and I will be happy to discuss the problems and the difficulties in doing so. The other is going to be foreign policy and defense. Uh, and in fact, the two may be linked, because remember that France has a strong bargaining chip in defense and foreign policy, because uh, after the departure of the UK, France will be the only European country with a permanent seat on the Security Council and the only country with an army worth talking about in Europe. So Germany's comparative advantage or strength in the monetary sphere may be partly matched by the French strength in, this, in foreign policy and defense. Uh, it will not be easy. Let me give you two or three examples of difficult decisions and trade-offs. And these are difficult decisions and trade-offs that apply not only to Europe, but to the rest of the world. One of the main issues facing us today is how to reconcile growth with a reduction of disparities within our countries. The increase in disparities is like a ticking bomb for Western democracies. Certainly true of Europe and certainly true of the United States. Uh, easier said than done. It is not obvious how you create conditions for inclusive growth. And there are some difficult trade-offs in decisions. Give you an illustration. Very often we talk about labor markets that need to become more flexible, more liberalization of labor markets, as a precondition for competitiveness in a rapidly changing, globalizing world. May be true, but the evidence from international economic organizations suggests that most countries that have further liberalized their labor markets have everything else being equal. This has contributed to more income in disparities within the countries. Is there a choice between social justice and growth? If there is such a choice, what answer do you give at a political level? Not easy. Another difficult thing facing Europeans is 
how do you create more democracy in a multinational setting? Remember the point I made earlier on. We have a huge discrepancy between policy integration and political integration. How do you deal with that? I mean, do you reduce, do you bring down the policy level? Okay, take the euro. The euro probably was a big mistake uh, because Europeans probably were not ready, either politically or economically, for it. So in that respect, the British were probably right in saying that we shouldn't have a common currency. Mistake or no mistake, the euro does exist. And the cost of leaving the euro and going back to national currencies is almost, is prohibitive and this is, there's an agreement among virtually all economists about it. So what do you do? Then you have to try to make the euro more sustainable. How do you make the euro more sustainable? And how do you make economic governance of a monetary union more democratically accountable? Not easy. You may want to do it. How do you do it in a multinational framework? And let me perhaps end with a reference to uh, a trilemma that has been talked about a lot. It was presented first by Danny Roderick, is a Turkish economist teaching at Harvard, who said that uh, in our modern world, contemporary world, three objectives, international economic interdependence or globalization, however you like to call it, sovereignty and democracy, these are the three. Countries can only have a combination of two out of three. So if you want a liberal economic order and you want sovereignty, you better forget democracy. If you want democracy, you better forget so sovereignty. Or you forget globalization. Europe has tried to give an answer to that problem, but only partially so, and not terribly successfully, but has tried more than any other part of the world in facing this trilemma. So in a sense, the European experiment is important not only for the Europeans, but also for the rest of the world. Because if Europeans fail to jointly manage their own interdependence, admittedly at a much higher level than global one, then the prospects for jointly managing interdependence at the global level are not good at all. Joe Philippa, could you please explain, perhaps with examples, what you mean by the European zoo? Well, uh, the European zoo could also be a postmodern European empire with different actors, both at the national level. That's what I meant. There were different animals moving in different directions with different size and with different degrees of aggression or passivity. Uh, it's uh, forget the term if you don't like it. Yeah, I mean, one way of presenting the European Union, perhaps, would be to talk about a postmodern European empire. But the difference with traditional empires is that the European Union is ruled on the basis of consensus and democracy, and not on diktat. 
And that's what distinguishes the European Union from previous empires. Take Lim. Um, I come to John's lectures quite a bit. Okay. Um, many of us has been following Yanis Yarafakis. I mean, and I, I mean, he was formerly from here anyway, so we have a lot of respect for him. And uh, he has written quite a bit, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, he said that he, ha he had, has had a very rough time you know, in negotiation in the EU, and he, I think he wrote in The Guardian on what Theresa May will face, the same issue. Now, if he didn't resign, would he have taken Greece out? And I know that you said that Europe is not that silly too, but we were following intensely, and uh, there are times where some of us might think, hey, maybe they are getting out, and would they, would it, would they have dared gone out in this place? And recently, okay, on a different subject, I noticed that Greece was very much now in favor with the Chinese camp, and recently, uh, it was some policy they, they would uh, abstain uh, from the rest of the EU members. Are the Chinese coming in in a big economic way to Greece? Okay. Now, for those of you who probably have not heard, Yanis Arufakis is an economist, is a prolific... He's e okay, so I don't need... He used to be. He's still, is he? Okay. Okay, so I better be careful about what I say about your <laughs> colleagues. <laughs> okay, so, so uh, about Varoufakis, I think that much of his analysis I would agree with. Much of the analysis that he has produced on the Eurozone crisis and on the problems of Greece as a member of the Eurozone crisis where he's not correct and he's been a total disaster in, in his uh, judgment about the balance of forces in Europe. He, Varoufakis is a typical example of the difference between being right and getting it right. Because he thought that Greece had a bargaining power so it could threaten its partners and the partners would back down in the end and they would produce a result that in economic terms makes sense. The Eurozone is not an academic seminar in which you, you, you win by argument. Argument is combined with force or rather with weight. So Varoufakis as an arrogant guy representing a bankrupt country, teaching lessons to other finance ministers in the Eurozone, has cost his country dozens of billions of euros. As an academic, he's very good, but I think he should have stayed there. <laughs> yes. Oh, the China question. Oh, yeah. Well, Chinese investment is growing the whole of Europe, and it's certainly growing in the southeastern part of Europe. And Chinese investment is carefully targeted in infrastructural projects and energy. For a country like Greece, 
that has been through the worst time in economic terms. Chinese investment, as you can imagine, is crucial. And the sensitivity, or rather the importance of Chinese investment has made the present Greek government ready to abstain from a European comment on Chinese democracy and human rights in order not to antagonize the Chinese. The answer is very simple. I think it's sad. That's the fact of life. Um, Colin Kalis. Um, um, recently, there's the Catalonian separatist movement and there's been votes in northern Italy. How do you see the separatist movements impacting the Europe uh, program? Uh, yeah, Catalonia is the thing that we did not expect to develop the way it developed. Uh, there are two contradictory things. On the one hand, I think you can legitimately argue that European integration unintentionally has been encouraging autonomous movements because an independent Scotland, an independent Catalonia, or an independent Flanders makes sense in the context of a European Union in which there's a large European market and many of the policies are shared at the European level. That's why all those autonomies, and the same thing in Northern Italy, are insisting on the need that their region, once it becomes independent, if it becomes independent, will be part of the EU. So the very existence of the EU makes an independent Scotland easier. It was not intended. Now, what is happening in Catalonia may in fact reverse that completely because uh, the pressure of the Spanish government is now leading people in Brussels and in the other European capitals to say, if you declare unilaterally independence, you are out. And if you finally get your independence, you will have to apply for membership and wait the usual wait of 15 years before it is considered. So good luck. Uh, and so that can in fact be the most important factor of dissuasion. So it's working the opposite direction now. It's beginning to work the opposite direction. Okay. Uh, perhaps three different things, although related. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, Greek politicians were caught in 2009-10 as having been, the way I put it, economical with the truth. Okay? If you want to put it more bluntly, they had been cooking the, the data. Uh, hence the famous term Greek statistics, which means that's the term used in Europe. Greek statistics, unfortunately, began to mean cooked statistics. And that didn't help the country at all. Uh, if we take the Greek case, Greece, of course, bears the biggest part of the responsibility for the mess it found itself in, in 2009-10, no doubt. But the situation in Greece got worse, not only because of mismanagement domestically, but also because of a punishing attitude by Europe's creditors, and even more by unrealistic 
policies and programs imposed on the country by its creditors with Germany as a leading member. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the big problems of the Eurozone, as it emerged in recent years, is the growing divergence between the North and the South. Uh, so, hence also at a time of when insults were exchanged, some financial analysts had this bright idea to call the group of Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, pigs. And that's, I suppose, how they felt about those countries. You know, financial analysts are neither known for their political correctness or even about their political sensitivity, to put it mildly. Uh, now, if this divergence within the Eurozone continues, it will be another ticking bomb. So, unless you create conditions for growth in the South again, because one of the reasons that European integration works so well for decades is there was convergence between countries. The poorer countries were growing faster than the rich ones. So the EU was often seen as a convergence machine. Since the crisis, this has been completely reversed. It cannot last. If it continues, it's going to be serious. Now, Germany. Germany, I mean, I could talk for hours. I will take three minutes and summarize. Let me try to present as fairly as I think I can the two sides of the coin. There is no doubt that Germany is a very successful country and in many ways a model for other countries to follow. It is a country that adjusted fast, that preserved its competitiveness, it has consensus politics domestically, it has political stability, and uh, all those reasons, all those things explain why Germany has emerged as the leader inside the European Union. Germany, on the other hand, presents a model that not everybody else can follow because it doesn't up, add up. A large, important factor for German growth, it is export-led growth. Germany has been running forever huge current account surpluses vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. The present current account surplus of Germany is of the order of 8% of GDP. It is significantly higher than that of China. Now, that is a problem. So, the adjustment that we have experienced inside the Eurozone is totally asymmetrical. The adjustment has fallen almost entirely on the deficit countries and not on the surplus countries. That's a problem. This is one of the issues raised by Macron. He does it politely, but he refers to that. Telos or telos is a Greek word, and uh, I'm not sure that we can have a clear teleological approach to European integration, because creative ambiguity can in fact help European integration for a very long time, otherwise you are not able to bring together people who have different views about the final destination. So final destination, start talking about the final destination is like talking about second coming. I'm not sure that would take us very far. Uh, but 
And you are right in saying that now, and very often in recent years, the European project appears to be something about you know, markets and economics and nothing else. And Europe, of course, is much more than that. And I can give you an illustration. We have now a few governments in Central and Eastern Europe who are proclaiming proudly their intention to introduce illiberal democracy. The illiberal trends are growing. In fact, these are views that are shared with the extreme right parties in Western Europe. What is the difference? In Western Europe, they are in opposition, while in Central and Eastern Europe, they are in power. That's the difference. I mean, the Prime Minister of Hungary, in many respects, is not very different from some of the Europhobic uh, and uh, xenophobic, wildly nationalist parties of Western Europe. The latter are still in opposition, luckily, and he's in power. So that is an area where I believe Europe has an important role to play. I say it very simply, if we do not defend some of our basic common values and democracy, I don't know what the EU should be there for. So the EU should take a much stronger stand on those issues. So the European project is, of course, largely about economics, but certainly not entirely about economics. And it is also about the common defense of the defense of common interests and values vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Because you can do it more effectively, jointly, than you can do it individually in our present world. Yes, so thank you for the reminder. Yeah. You are right. I mean, of course, the European Union has gone much further than any other group of countries in the joint management of interdependence, in sharing sovereignty, and in creating institutions that defend those values and democracy as well. The trouble is that in the perception of the ordinary citizen, this is the large majority of our citizens, Europe doesn't mean much. It is national and local politics that count. And this is something that cannot be created from above. This is something that takes many, very many years. The Court of Justice, of course, you have a European Court of Justice that takes decisions that transcend national frontiers, right? And the UK was terribly unhappy about it because foreign judges would decide for us. That was the argument, right? But, and we have introduced direct elections for, for the European Parliament, yet, half of European citizens don't even bother to go and vote because they don't think wrongly that the European Parliament has enough powers to bother to vote. So it's, it's a long process, it's not easy. Ask the majority of European citizens, do they think, what do they understand about the European Union? I mean, another, again, small parenthesis. One interesting idea that is now being circulated and it's been put forward by Macron. That in the next election to the European Parliament, what we do have so far is each country is voting for its group of members of parliament to go to the European Parliament. So each country has a number of seats. So you vote for the Greeks, for the Irish, for the Portuguese, for the Germans and so on. 
So the proposal now is people will be voting on two lists. One will be the national list, and the other will be a transnational European list, and those seats will be taken by the departing Brits, from the departing Brits. So the 70-odd Brits will create a space for a transnational group. Again, think about it. You, ouch. Yeah. Think about it. You will have a list of 75 candidates across Europe, and it will be the same candidates in each country. Are there 75 Europeans with wide recognition across 27 countries? If they are not footballers or, Eurovi <laughs> or, or Eurovision singers? It's not easy. So how do you actually practice democracy at the European level? There we go. Oh, yes. Now it's better. Um, my question relates specifically to the, to the Eurozone and the common currency. Um, discussion in class regularly comes to the contradiction of separation of fiscal and monetary policy. How do you understand um, the success or the, con or the possible success of, of the Euro into the future when countries aren't able to use the levers of monetary policy like currency devaluation to be able to fix um, economic... Uh, negative economic situations domestically. Uh, Paul Butler, um, European citizen and Australian citizen. Um, I was very. <laughs> um, very interested in your comments about uh, the initiatives being led by um, France and Germany, and uh, a lot of the times coming from different directions. And so my question is about uh, natural alliances within the European Union. Uh, does France have um, natural allies? Does Germany have natural allies? And an attendant question, I come initially from Ireland, which of course is a very small country. Is, is there um, uh, a tendency for the smaller, more vulnerable countries to form a coalition of interest to um, make sure that their uh, interests are uh, well heard in the, in the in corridors of power. Thank you. Right, you just gave us another reason to screw the British and take their seats and um, turn it into a European list. With the, the Brexit, um, surely it's in the Europeans' interest to take the UK's financial uh, industries um, if, the, if there's a soft Brexit, it provides encouragement to all the other separatist things. Why on the earth would the Europeans want to have a soft exit rather than just kick the Brits out and um, put the boot in? Quite frankly, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think I'm a justice. <laughs> Straight-talking Greeks, you know. Uh, okay, so about the euro. Uh, true, if you are a member of the euro, you cannot devalue. One of the problems is that in a currency union where there is not much in terms of common institutions and instruments, and no budget, no transfers, and so on, Germany clearly has a strong structural comparative advantage 
because it has the capacity, it has proven it throughout the years, throughout the decades, it has the capacity to keep wage increases and inflation much lower than most of its partners inside the currency union. And we experienced that in the first 10 years of the euro, but we had experienced it again in previous attempts at European monetary integration. And that is a structural problem. It has to do with political institutions in, in Germany. It has to do also with the flexibility of the German economy. It's a long story. So what do you do if you are stuck in a currency union? Uh, the Greeks discovered that. The Italians discovered that. The Irish discovered that. They went on a spending spree for 10 years. They had a party. Uh, they grew faster than the Germans. And then the bill came. Okay? And when they woke up from a long period of drunkenness, the bill was pretty heavy. And the Germans didn't help them very much. So there is a problem. The Germans often argue, they, the expression I use, the Germans are, uh, try to export the idea of the Ohio approach to monetary union. Ohio stands for own house in order. So they say if everybody puts his or her house in order, preferably the way we do it, Okay? There's no problem in the Eurozone. Everybody will be happy. There is an element of truth in that, but certainly not the whole truth, because the Euro is much more than the sum of individual parts. So any currency union in history requires some form of economic governance and degree of transfers, some budget, not only uh, internal devaluation. That's what history, I think, teaches us. So we haven't found the answer yet, but we're struggling. Now, France and Germany and natural alliances. During the Eurozone crisis, there seemed to be more or less natural alliances. The German view was supported by the Dutch, the Austrians, the Finns, and most of Central and Eastern Europeans while the French sided, well, not completely, because they were afraid of what the financial market's judgment will be on their own economy, but were in closer alliance with Southern Europe. Uh, there are such alliances, but they're not, never permanent. For example, the Germans, to their shock and horror, discovered that Central and Eastern Europe is not a given alliance when it came to the refugee crisis. When they discovered that the Poles, the Hungarians, the Czechs, and the rest would not agree with them and would not take one refugee to share the burden. So, and of course, so the EU works because alliances are shifting, but some alliances have a stronger structure than others. And small countries had to be particularly flexible, because otherwise they will, I mean, they will be trampled down. Now, Brexit. If common sense prevails, and I hope common sense prevails in the end, uh, we all have an interest in having a very soft Brexit, 
and in having a deal that leads to a new special relationship with the UK. Because the UK is an important country, it's a big country, it is not in the interest of anybody to have the UK in a mess or breaking the relationship between the continent and the UK. Having said that, of course, the EU has no interest in making it so easy for the British so that it can, it can offer them everything without any price because that would be a precedent for us. So you have to find a compromise between the two. Uh, it will not be easy, but so far the court has been, the ball has been mainly on the British court and the problem is that Brexit has made the British political class and British society even more divided than it was before the referendum. I mean, British politics is in a mess. And I'm not rejoicing in seeing that, but it is a sad fact of life. Uh, Brexit can prove to be extremely traumatic for the country and for its internal politics forget politics in the relations with the rest of the EU. So I do hope that common sense will prevail in the end because you, know, you can have, in a sense, you have divorce and then you have a relationship that dares not speak its name afterwards. Let's hope for that. Shakespeare. I have to confess. Uh, I extract the confession that, that <laughs> Yes, you are right, but I'm afraid I don't have an easy answer for you. Uh, first of all, remember, I mean, you know that better than I do, that social democracy has been in decline in virtually all countries. And social democracy has been in decline, largely because, I believe, most social democratic parties, especially in Europe, adopted without much thought the neoliberal model, which contributed to the increasing number of losers within countries. The losers were precisely the people who used to vote for them. So the losers have moved in the two opposite directions. The majority of them have moved to the extreme right, and some of them have moved to the radical left. And in between, social democracy has been badly squeezed. Uh, so if it is indeed a social democratic answer that is required, assuming that this is the case, then our electorates don't help us today, <laughs> okay, and we are in democracies. Uh, having said that, at the European level, the balance can only change if the Germans become convinced that the present situation is unsustainable. Because the stakes for Germany, for everybody the stakes are very high, but for the Germans in particular, the Germany is the country that probably has benefited more 
from the creation of the common currency and still continues to be a major beneficiary of European integration. I mean, the whole existence of Germany and German economics is premised on the assumption that the single market continues and the currency union continues. If the Germans become convinced that, that you know, this is, there's a real risk, and they also have a French president who has stronger bargaining power and tells them so, there may be a shift, but I can't guarantee it. So that's why I think Macron is useful because it may, he may help to shift the balance and the policies in the direction that perhaps you and me might desire. But at the domestic level, it doesn't help. Yeah, uh, Patrick, international student out of Germany. Um, I have a question regarding to uh, Macron. And what is if he fails? Because he well, fa uh, what is when he fails with his uh, approach? Because he faces a lot of resistance against his new policies within France. Well, of oh yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> Professor, thank you uh, uh, for a very ba a balanced um, uh, presentation and I'm glad you made those remarks uh, at the end there about uh, how much Germany has benefited from the, uh, both the EU and the Euro. Uh, indeed, I think UBS Bank um, put a figure on it of something like uh, if Germany left the Euro and went back to the Deutsche Mark, it would cost uh, something like 7,000 euros per capita each German in the first year and probably 45,000 euros per capita ongoing. So Germany has a big financial stake in uh, both the EU and the Euro and I think that needs to be um, brought out a bit more in, in the debate how much Germany has to lose um, and how much Germany needs to uh, uh, compromise somewhat in the interests of uh, the peripheral countries like Greece and uh, Portugal, Ireland, and so on. Uh, if you'd ha had any comment on that, I'd be interested in. Okay, now, first of all, if Macron fails, of course, there's no guarantee that he succeeds. Uh, he's been remarkable in upsetting the political balance in France in an extraordinary way. He has done also something which, if you think about it, is amazing. He his election was a challenge to the traditional division between left and right in the country that he has invented left and right in the first place. Right? Left and right comes from the French Revolution. So he worked, he challenged the division between left and right. He claims that in many respects, I'm not sure, not convinced, but this is another. Uh, now, if he fails, so far he's not doing badly. Uh, his labor reform was carefully prepared, and I think is likely to deliver. His labor reform is a way not only he sees to create more favorable conditions for growth domestically, but also to tell 
with other European partners, and especially the German partners, that he means business at home and he delivers. So if I deliver at home, you start delivering also at the European level. I have no guarantee that it will work, but there are reasonable chances that he will not fail. How shall I put it? Uh, and I hope he doesn't, because it's for, for everybody's sake in Europe. Uh, Germany, yes, uh, I think that Germany has been a very stable country, has been a very successful country. If you think about it, uh, now we are worried because there is this new right-wing party that got 13% of the votes. But it's not bad compared to many other European countries. We are shocked because it happened for the first time in Germany. The German politics has been remarkably stable. In fact, sometimes too stable and too conservative. That means they don't challenge established views. They don't have the habit of challenging established views. Uh, and Germany sometimes exhibited signs of arrogance in recent years that were not terribly welcome. But Germany remains pillar of the European construction, and it has many extremely European-minded people, politics, and also a large section of German society. What, for example, one thing I can, I always criticize my fellow my compatriots for many of the things that they have done or have not done. One thing I criticize German politicians, the way they handled the Eurozone crisis, is one of the things I criticize. I'll tell you what it is. When Germany saved Greece, but it also saved Ireland and Portugal and lent money, not only Germany with the other countries, but Germany at the forefront, German politicians never bothered to explain in Germany that they were not only saving Greece and Portugal, they were saving German banks, okay? And unless you say that, you don't get the response you need from your electorate because you present it as a concession to other countries. If German politicians had the guts in 2010 to go and say that we are rescuing the irresponsible Greeks and they were irresponsible Greeks, we are rescuing the irresponsible Greeks, but indirectly we are rescuing the irresponsible bankers from Germany and the other European countries who contributed to the mess, then it would not, the reaction of the German public would not have been the same. But they never did it. And we are paying the price for it, all of us. Since um, we have you here, it's a very special occasion. Well, in 2015, it was 1 million for a country of 11 million. Right. So there is something astonishing about this. Mm. And I just wondered um, what your assessment is. Well, sometimes I have this bad habit of offering advice even when I'm not asked. Uh, but uh, it is true. I mean, one can say all sorts of bad things about my country. But a country that has experienced a loss of 25% of its GDP in six years, that has experienced a rate of unemployment that reached 27%, and youth unemployment was above 
50%, who have preserved democracy and who have not turned completely xenophobic, especially when the immigrants started arriving, is a pretty remarkable feat. So that I think one needs to acknowledge, and it is not always done. Uh, my I mean, the way, my, the way I put it to my compatriots is, first of all, before criticizing others, we need to criticize ourselves. So you start with self-criticism, and then you address yourself to the Germans and the others, because otherwise you're not credible. So the mess we are in is largely, not entirely, our fault. But then once you do that, then you are justified to address yourself to Germans and others and say, you know, this is madness. And to give you an illustration, Greece's creditors are asking the country to produce for years a primary surplus in its budget of 3.5%. A country that has lost a quarter of its GDP. Its banks are on the, board, um, on the brink of collapse. To produce surpluses of 3.5%, is like asking for strangulation. So is this the way you handle relations with your partner? So yes, there is a problem. I think Greece needs a, its own exit plan from the crisis that we own up to it. We take measures that we actually believe in. We've taken many. We need to take a few more, and then go to the others and say, no longer, this is not possible. But not the way that Varoufakis did it, because it was absurd. You had an arrogant finance minister who never understood the balance of power in, in Europe coming from a bankrupt country and giving lessons to the others. I mean, this, this was sheer madness. It was emotional intelligence of below zero. Uh, I'm sorry for being undiplomatic well, for a colleague. <laughs> okay, so, and I said before that much of his analysis was correct, but one thing is to produce correct academic analysis, and a totally different thing is to have a right policy as a politician. They are not the same thing. And Eurozone meetings with Schäuble inside are not academic seminars. They are rough uh, operations, but they are not academic seminars. Uh, so yes, I think that Greece has probably the worst is behind us. Uh, and Greece simply has to strengthen a bit its own credibility and then really go and say, we have done a bit. This is an impossible situation. What they're doing to us is really forcing us. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's assassination. Varoufakis well, has called it waterboarding. Okay. But, and in this respect, you have the support of the IMF, and funnily enough, also I understand, of President Trump. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney 
underscore ideas.